Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On a hiking route in the heart of one of Norway's most beautiful yet rugged valleys, a man and his two daughters were approaching one of the most perilous parts of their journey, an area known as Death Valley. As they carefully made their way through the rough landscape, one of the girls began to smell a strange odour, and the family followed their noses to an area along the trail. One of the daughters was the first to notice where the strange smell was coming from, when they saw a pile of ashes on the floor and a smell of charred meat filled the air. Their eyes fell upon what soon became recognisable as a burned body the arms contorted and the features erased. In shock, they made their way hurriedly back down the trail to call for help, and within a short while, authorities would arrive. But who was this mysterious person? Where did they come from? And more importantly, how did they end up burned to a crisp in a valley a long way from civilization? Today on Macabre Mini Mysteries, we uncover the story of the Isdal woman. And welcome back to another episode of Macabre Mini Mysteries. I'm Nikki Druce, your host with a silent G, and today I'll be taking you on a journey into another macabre tale from around the world. Today we're going to be exploring the history and lore behind a tale which has baffled the public and investigators alike, the case of the Isdal Woman. 
And I hope you've taken your motion sickness tablets because this one goes all over the place. However, before we get into today's story, if you're new here and you want to see more videos where we deep dive into some lesser known historic tales from London, and in fact all over the world and beyond, then please don't forget to subscribe or follow so you never miss a new episode. If you've been here for a while now and you regularly enjoy the show and you like to support what I make to make sure it continues, then why not consider becoming a patron, the link for which is in the description. There's a plethora of extra content over there, including my new show with my long-suffering other half called Having a Problem, where we get to the root of the problem with a particular topic every fortnight. They're a little bit history-based, a little bit news-based, and a lot silly. The next episode is all about sharks, and it gets very nerdy, and we have a really good giggle. So if you want to listen to that and much, much more, then head over to Patreon. It's as little as £3 a month, and you get access to a whole library of content, so it's an absolute bargain in my opinion. I'll be really honest with you, it is my dream to do this full time now and I would love for you to be a part of helping me to achieve that. You'll be pleased to know as well as we head into spooky season, if you sign up to Patreon before the end of September to the £5 and up tier, you'll receive a Halloween goodie bag from yours truly at some point in October. So why not go ahead and take the plunge if you've been thinking about it? I'd love to see you over there so I can personally welcome you to the Ghoul Gang. In the tranquil and serene beauty of the Isdalen Valley near Bergen in Norway, the eerie discovery of a lifeless woman in one of the most rugged areas of the country on November 29, 1970, sparked a chilling mystery that has puzzled investigators and captivated the public for decades since. On the afternoon of the fateful day, a professor and his two daughters went to Ulriken, an area known for hiking. But this was no ordinary trail. The area was known to be not for the faint-hearted or the unfit, for that matter, as it contained difficult trails that were for experienced hikers only. Norway has seven mountains that surround the second largest city of Bergen, and Ulriken is the highest of them all, with its summit being 643 metres, 2,110 feet above sea level. In the 1960s, Ulriken was given a makeover to make it more hospitable for the many people that went hiking in the area. There was a cable car installed to ferry people from the bottom to the top, and an almost five-mile-long train tunnel was built, which ran, and still does to this day, through the mountain itself to connect people to both sides of it. There was even a restaurant built on the mountain to service the increased number of people visiting the area. However, the easy hiking routes were visited frequently, but anything that was a bit trickier and off the beaten path still remained quiet, and for good reason. The paths were hard and not to be attempted by anyone unless they were an experienced hiker. Those that did try anything harder often found themselves getting into difficulty and in some cases dying from falling or exposure, succumbing to nature's harsh and unrelenting ways. In the medieval times, Ulriken became a place to bury their dead and even a place one would go to if they wanted to walk out into the cold sunless days of winter and never return. Paired with the hiking incidents in the same area, part of the mountain known as Ice Valley began to have a secondary name, Death Valley. 
Back to the afternoon hike on the 29th of November, the family were making their way through one of the harsher parts of the mountain's terrain when one of the girls started to smell an odd odour. Smoke wafted on the breeze, but it had an unrecognisable extra depth to it, a heaviness which she could only link to burning meat. The family were inquisitive about the strange smell, and so they followed their noses. As they grappled over ravines and crevices, it soon became apparent that there were a pile of ashes nestled in a crag, but as their eyes adjusted, they were horrified to see the ashes were the outline of a human body. As the body was very obviously deceased, the family retreated back down the mountain to go and get help. Within a short amount of time, police arrived on the scene to try and unravel who this person was and why they were alone and cremated on a remote part of the mountain. First off, the police began to check the area and to see if there were any reports of missing hikers from Bergen or the surrounding areas, but none had been sent in. The body was removed from the area, along with the items which were found around it, and what the police were expecting to be yet another lost hiker or wild camper who'd suffered an accidental gas explosion was soon panning out to be something very different. When the body was discovered, the arms were in a sparring-type position, much like if you were about to throw the first punch in a boxing match. This is something which is apparently quite common in burn victims as the muscles contract as a result of the intense heat and the limbs go stiff. This meant that the person was very much alive when they were on fire. The clothes of the victim had all but burned away on the front side of the body and the facial features had also been eviscerated by the intensity of the fire. This meant it wasn't immediately obvious to tell if the victim was male or female, but a closer inspection at the post-mortem revealed the victim was a woman. Around the body was found, amongst other small items, all of which were mostly burned or marked by the fire, a pair of blue rubber sailor boots, the skeleton of a broken umbrella, remains of a handbag, a partially empty bottle of alcohol, two plastic hiking water bottles with a cup, a plastic spoon, a watch with the time stopped at 12.32, and other pieces of jewellery which had been laid out on a rock, burned bread and a fur hat which was found underneath the body. Interestingly, anything which had a label on it had been carefully removed or scrubbed away, and the remains of the clothing which she was wearing also had no identifying features on them. The tags had all been removed. So either she didn't want these things to be traceable, or whoever may have had a hand in her death wanted to get rid of anything that may have been able to provide evidence as to her identity. In a strange turn of events, the items which were found didn't seem to be haphazardly placed. Everything seemed to be in a clean and neat order, and the items still remained pretty much where the officers expected them to have been placed at the time. The crevice the body was found in may have provided some windshield to the deceased woman, and despite what would have been wintry conditions on an exposed mountainside for an estimated six days since she died, everything was still neat and tidy. 
before she'd gone up in flames, the amount of clothing the woman was wearing was considerable and enough to keep her warm in the freezing exposed conditions on the mountainside. She had thick rubber boots, nylon stockings, a coat, jumper and trousers, and several layers on to keep her warm. But none of these items could provide any detail, as they weren't that remarkable, except the blue rubber boots. Not a common item of clothing in Norway at the time, and the first hint that the woman may have been from out of town, and in fact, even out of country. Investigators began asking around in the town and put out an artist's impression of what she may have looked like. From what the forensic team and pathologist could work out, she was a dark-haired woman with dark brown eyes who may have worn her hair in a blue and white ribbon, which was found at the scene. Her height was around 5 foot 4 and she was anywhere between 25 to 40 but there were no leads or instantly reported sightings of a woman wearing blue rubber boots matching that description, and it seemed as if the woman had appeared from nowhere on the mountainside. However, just a few days after the body had been discovered, there was a break in the case. As the story of the now-named Isdal woman had made its way into the press in the quiet town of Bergen, and as the crime rate across the whole of Norway is incredibly low, the story had piqued the interest of the locals, and everyone was on the hunt for clues, or even worse, a murderer on the run. At Bergen Central train station, a locker pinged open after its time had expired on its booked occupancy, and inside, it revealed something very interesting. Station workers discovered two small suitcases that had been stashed with them, and wondering if they might be to do with the case, they contacted the police to come and take a look. Inside, they found a puzzling set of items, but did they belong to the Isdal woman? Only time would tell. But here seems like a good time to take a break from our story to hear from our wonderful sponsor of today's episode, Alternate Universe. I would never recommend something I didn't think was good myself, so you can be assured that Alternate Universe is going to tickle your fancy. This ad goes out to all the spooky crafters and the cosy macabre London listeners that like to crochet or knit while they enjoy these episodes, or who have maybe been thinking about taking up a new hobby for the winter months. Alternate Universe is an ethical yarn shop designed to bring a bit of whimsy to your woolly shopping adventures. Alter Knit. K-N-I-T. Get it? Because it's a knitting shop. Okay, we love a pun, particularly a crafty one. Anyway, if you like the idea of stepping into an alternate universe where yarns are guarded by a crocheted dragon, then this is the place for you. In their real-life shop just outside of Bristol, you'll find an inclusive space full of colour and texture that gives Victorian shop meets cottagecore living room vibes with an inclusive and cosy welcoming environment for everyone. Everything in the shop fits under the umbrella of natural, recycled, local or ethically produced, so you can pick up supplies for your next project or a fun gift without having to worry about its impact on the world or the people and creatures that live on it. They research suppliers and ask the hard questions about production so you don't have to, and they love supporting local makers and other awesome small businesses so you're always going to find something new to treasure. 
If you're not a crafter yourself, you can check out their new section of made-to-order gifts that are a little macabre, like a little knitted arsenic bottle catnip toy, which sounds so fun. I know Boots would absolutely love one of those. Alternate Universe are an LGBTQ plus safe space and constantly trying to hold space for minorities. The owner Kim, a bi and disabled activist, even describes herself as a granny punk. So you know you're in good hands there and that you'll be welcome to learn how to craft or to further your crafting adventure regardless of who you are, which is how it should be. And if you can't make it out to their physical shop to squish all the fibres and have a cup of tea in person, yes, they do drinks too, I've been reliably informed that they do a lovely pumpkin spice coffee, then you've got alternateuniverse.co.uk to browse and their social media to get inspired and start your new project or maybe finish one you've been working on. They ship pretty much anywhere in the world and all their packages are wrapped up in brown paper and string, just like the old general stores used to do, to give it that cottage core, gift to yourself kind of vibes. Kim even has a YouTube channel where you can see behind the scenes vlogs and podcast episodes about what she's making and get inspired yourself. Now here's the best bit, they're giving you the lovely audience of Macabre London an exceptionally generous discount. You can get 20% off your first order in store or online by using the code, now this is all in capitals, MACABRE20. Head on over to alternateuniverse.co.uk to join in this wonderful community and snag supplies for your next woolly project. That's alternateuniverse.co.uk. Alter K-N-I-T universe.co.uk and use the code M-A-C-A-B-R-E-20 to get your discount or at AU Shop UK on Instagram. Happy crafting. Thanks for listening. And let's get back to the episode. Investigators had their hands on two different suitcases, which had been discovered at the Bergen train station, left behind at the lockers three days after the woman's body was found in Death Valley. As they opened them, it was clear that some of the items had a striking similarity to some that were found at the scene where her body was discovered, and that these suitcases must have belonged to the woman. Any items inside which had labels had been all but removed, and a definite match was made when a pair of non-prescription glasses were found which had a fingerprint on the lens. Luckily, in the fire, the woman's fingerprints hadn't been burned off, so they managed to positively identify that the smudgy mark on the lens belonged to her. The suitcase revealed some interesting items. Firstly, all the clothes inside had the labels removed. There were a few different wigs, several items of makeup and cosmetics, again with all the labels removed. As the inspection of the items continued, they only helped to muddy the waters. Money of various currencies were found, including German notes and French and English coins. Several roadmaps of different European countries and a few dust bags for shoes acquired from different stores. There were two notebooks, one of which was blank, but just had a few equally blank picture postcards stuffed inside it. The other had writing in it, but what that writing meant would take a while to decipher, as the entries were seemingly written in code. A tube of prescription eczema cream was found, but again the label had been removed, and with it, the chances of getting in contact with the woman's doctor or pharmacist. 
Whoever these items belonged to, or whoever had disposed of them for that matter, had decided they didn't want to be traced. With the notebooks in the luggage handed over to codebreakers, investigators would have to wait to see if the pages held vital evidence to who the woman was. The cosmetics, which were also found without labels in the suitcases, were sent off to the finest cosmetologists in Paris at the Galleries Lafayette, a place known for stocking an enormous range of cosmetics. Investigators hoped that even though the labels had been removed on the items, the packaging alone might be enough to identify the items, but alas, their efforts were fruitless and even the most senior staff at the French department store drew a blank. The only item which was found in the abandoned suitcases which held any kind of clue to where the woman may have been on her travels was a dust bag for a shoe shop in Stavanger, a town on the coast of Norway, 130 miles away from where she had ended up in Bergen. The shoe bag was from Oscar Rortvet's footwear store in Stavanger, which is incidentally still open to this day, and investigators made their way there to see if any of the shop assistants could help. Luckily, the owner's son, Rolf Rortved, had been working on the shop floor that day and he said he remembered a woman matching the description and also paired her with the rubber sailor boots which were recovered from the scene where her body was found. He remembered the interaction as it was unusual in the fact that firstly, the woman didn't speak Norwegian, she spoke English, but she did so with an accent, but he wasn't sure where that accent was from. He also said she was calm and quiet in demeanour. Their interaction in the shop was odd, as Rolf said people would usually come in, pick a pair of shoes, try them on, and either buy them or not. But she tried on the boots and took quite a while within the shop, walking around in them, umming and ahhing about whether to buy them or not. She then left empty-handed, saying she needed to think about it. But the woman may have left the shop, but she did leave behind something in the store, and that was an unpleasant odour. Rolf said at the time he thought the smell was just odd, not too horrendous, and just a little bit whiffy, but he didn't think too much of it. But in later life, he would unlock the memory of the smell as garlic. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. In Norway in the 1970s, garlic wasn't part of the mainstay of the country's cooking, and as such, the smell would have been unusual and unknown to the cobbler's son. But apart from her scent and a description of the woman, not more was gleaned from their short interaction that could be passed on to the investigators. 
She did return to the shop the following day and buy the boots after serious consideration overnight. And this is where the bag, which pinpointed police to her one-time whereabouts, came from, ending up in her discarded suitcase. After Rolf had provided his statement to investigators, they had enough to go forward with to start tracking her down to the local hotels. It seemed as though the woman had been travelling around, and if they could trace her back to a stay, this may provide the answers they needed. Back in this era, all hotel guests had to fill in a registration form and present a passport in order to be able to stay at a hotel. This meant that investigators would have access to her name and home address, amongst other details. At the St. Sveithen Hotel, they found that a woman matching the description had checked out a few days earlier. Her name was Fenella Lorch. However, when the database was searched for a record of the woman's name, nothing came up, and her passport was seemingly fake. As it transpired, police tracked her down to several hotels over Norway, and at each of them she used a variety of different names. All hoteliers were meant to check passports to make sure they matched with the name given, but as it transpired, the majority of them were lax and didn't actually look in the passports, or they didn't even ask for one. Over time, it was discovered from the hotel records that she had two stays in Norway, one between March and April 1970, and then again from the end of October 1970 until her untimely end at the end of November 1970. The woman's aliases, which were linked together by investigators using handwriting analysis, were Genevieve Lancia, Claudia Tielt, Claudia Nielsen for her March to April stay, and Alexia Zahn Merchez, Vera Jarl, Vanella Lorch, Elizabeth Leenhofer for her October-November stay. When it came to reports of the woman herself and her behaviour, staff at the hotel said she often acted in a strange manner and seemed to be a mixture of demanding and paranoid. She asked to move rooms a few times during her stays and also would ask for specific rooms overlooking the front of the hotel, perhaps to see who was coming and going. Some staff said she would also have occasional male visitors, and one said she was seen having dinner in the hotel bar with two naval officers. She spoke French, German and English, and used them interchangeably, but she didn't speak any Norwegian. But why would anyone remember this? After all, these were fairly routine interactions of hotel guests, and nothing remarkable or noteworthy. But as it turned out, The woman herself was. The Isdal woman, or at least who they remembered to be the Isdal woman, was strikingly beautiful and very stylish. One young woman working at one of the hotels said she was fascinated with her style and even wanted to try and emulate it herself. She said she was caught by the woman when she was staring at her, trying to take in her stylistic choices and commit them to memory, and she winked at her in return. But despite this, all of these sightings were vague, some only came about when prompted by investigators, and as this was a big story in Norway, it could well be that people began to think they'd seen the woman when actually they'd tied her to the story of another guest with the Isdal woman's composite drawing from the paper stuck in their minds. 
By this time, the codebreakers, which had been working away on the woman's notebooks and the code discovered within, came back with an answer as to what it all may mean. First off, the code wasn't quite as sophisticated as the police had first thought, and actually, it was quite simple to work out. Okay, so time for you to see if you can be a codebreaker yourself and if you can work this one out. One code that was discovered was 022028P. The next was 029PS. Any ideas? I couldn't work it out myself, but I'm awful at things like this. But once you know the formula, it's actually pretty easy to work out the rest of the entries found in the notebook. Do you reckon you've cracked it? If you want a bit longer to work it out, feel free to pause and come back when you're ready. If you're like me and at a loss, then time for the reveal. 022 and 028 are dates, i.e. October 22nd to the 28th, and P stands for the first letter of the city she was staying in. 022028P means staying in Paris between the 22nd and the 28th of October. The same thing goes for the next one, except 029PS is a travel day, Paris to Stavanger. And once you know that formula, it's pretty easy to work out what the next ones mean. With the code cracked, police who had previously suspected the woman to be a spy realised things may not have been so complicated after all, and seemingly these were just her travel plans, albeit slightly mysteriously written. The deciphered code enabled investigators to contact the police forces in the relevant cities across Europe to see if the woman had been sighted there, but the subsequent reports were scant and vague at best. Whilst Europe was being scoured for any clues of the mysterious woman, back at the morgue, the body of the woman was being inspected to see if it held any further clues. The pathologist carried out the post-mortem and in the woman's stomach he found an alarming amount of tablets in various states of metabolism. Between 50 to 70 sleeping tablets had been ingested by the woman and only around 12 remained undissolved. Her lungs were checked which showed they'd been subject to carbon monoxide inhalation from the smoke produced by the flames which engulfed the front of her body. This meant that even though she had taken enough sleeping tablets to make her incoherent, she was still alive when she was burned. As a result of these findings, her death was ruled as a combination of the ingestion of the tablets and smoke inhalation. One unexplainable mark on her body was a large bruise on the right side of her neck. At the time when her body was found, there didn't seem to be anything around which may have been responsible for the bruise, so perhaps this had been inflicted before she died. To assist in tracking down potential family members, her internal organs were also examined, which showed she had never had a child, and so yet another potential lead was lost. When her body was found, the underside had a few drops of petrol on it. However, there wasn't a fuel canister found when her body was discovered. So how did the fuel get there and why did she take so many pills if her plan was to set herself alight the whole time? The death was ruled by the coroner as not suspicious and it was said she had taken her own life, despite things looking a little more complicated than that. 
As the case was ruled as unsuspicious, the investigation was drawn to a close and the woman was buried a few months later, in February of 1971. As she was a Jane Doe, there were no family, friends or even acquaintances at her funeral. Just the police officers who had worked on the case. She was given a Catholic burial due to some items found in her luggage which suggested that she might have been Catholic and laid to rest in an unmarked grave in Mollendal Churchyard in Bergen. However, to make sure her body didn't get lost to the elements entirely, she was placed inside a zinc coffin. That way her remains would stay hermetically sealed and if at any point it became possible to identify the woman as science advanced in later years, she could potentially be exhumed and reunited with her family and buried wherever she had come from. Before her body was committed to the earth, samples were taken of her organs and her lower jawbone was removed to be kept in storage. The reason for this unusual harvesting was due to the dentistry the woman had received on her teeth. For someone who was young, she had a lot of dental work done on her lower teeth and a lot of this was unusual and definitely not carried out in Norway as the techniques used weren't something dentists there were familiar with. Almost all of her teeth had some kind of work carried out on them. This ranged from gold fillings through to acrylic bonding. This work was checked with dentists in Norway, and none of them there could pinpoint where it may have been carried out, but investigators held out hope that at some point the jaw would become crucial to solving the case. The dentist it was given to for safekeeping, Giselle Bang, died in the years after he acquired the jawbone. His death wasn't related to the case, just FYI. And as the case had gone cold, it was mislaid and forgotten about. In fact, years passed and people believed that the jawbone had been thrown away, allegedly because it smelled. However, it was later rediscovered lurking in a basement in Hawkeland University Hospital's forensic archives. And I'm sure I've probably butchered that name. So do accept my apologies. This rediscovery in 2016 was presented to the police and the forensic team to see if new advancements in forensic science could help in tracing the woman. Now, this is where things get wonderfully sciencey, and the passage of time has definitely helped to advance this case. Oxygen and strontium isotope testing was used to test the teeth, and this type of testing can be used to reveal the heavy metals and elements on bone to reveal where the woman came from based on the minerals indelibly marked within her bone. But the results of the testing was unfortunately quite vague and not as pinpointed as was hoped for, but revealed she may have been from Nuremberg in Germany. Samples of the woman's organs were taken before she was buried in 1971, and again, as forensic science has developed, the possibility of using these samples to provide vital information about the woman has been created. DNA databases now exist from which relatives can be found, but as the DNA is owned by the Norwegian police, they, on ethical grounds, have refused to release it. But what they have done is issued an Interpol black notice, which will allow police across Europe to search their DNA databases. But the woman's DNA will not be in the public domain, as this is still an active case. So all that leaves us to do is theorise about who this woman was and how did she end up on the side of a mountain having suffered such a horrific death. 
Starting with the official post-mortem results, this was a woman who had decided to end her own life, albeit in a horrific and illogical way, but perhaps she was mentally unwell, was not in her right mind, and decided through paranoia or for whatever reason that she had to end it all. Maybe the tablets that were ingested took too long to take effect or maybe they had more of an effect on her and so she decided to burn herself or perhaps the fire was an attempt to conceal her identity, much like the removal of the labels on all of her belongings. This leads us neatly onto theory two, that she was a spy. During the 60s and 70s, Norway was a hotbed of spy activity due to its involvement in missile building, and it could be that this woman was tasked with learning more information about the covert operation. This would explain why she was seen with naval officers and the different disguises found in her suitcases. Several intelligence agencies have been questioned about the Isdal woman and asked if they'd like to claim her or if they were even responsible for her death but no one has ever stepped forward to say she was working for them or against them. Theory three is that she was an international adult worker who travelled around Europe, which would also make sense with her many stays in hotels, being seen with a few different men, and the disguises within her luggage. However, the items she carried with her were more practical and ordinary, and her luggage wasn't filled with fancy lingerie or prophylactics, which one would expect of a person in that career. The three main theories all cast an intriguing look at the supposed life of a mystery woman who still to this day, 53 years since she was discovered, is still defying investigators, police and medical professionals. It seems that despite everyone's best efforts, whether she wanted to remain unidentified herself or someone never wanted her to be identified, they did an excellent job. If this case happened today, no doubt it would be solved within a matter of days or, at worst, weeks, as it is impossible to stay away from surveillance nowadays and the digital world we live in. But back then, despite leaving her body behind, she still managed to disappear completely. Still to this day, despite extensive efforts by Norwegian authorities and international cooperation, the Isdal woman's true identity and the circumstances of her death remain an enduring and seemingly unsolvable enigma, leaving behind a plethora of unanswered questions that continue to captivate and mystify those who seek to unveil the truth of both her life and her death. With her body having been kept preserved and her DNA unlocked, we may see some advancements in this case as the years go on and science evolves. But until that time, the case of the Esdal woman will remain a macabre mini-mystery. episode i hope you found that tale as fascinating as i did i am not somebody who typically enjoys an unsolved mystery as i like to have all the answers but this one is just too intriguing to not retell and i hope you enjoyed the ride 
I would love to hear your theories on this one about who she was and please pop them in the comments on YouTube or head over to my social media and leave me a comment there on the case file for this one. I also want to say that despite this episode being relatively long, I literally only scraped the surface on this case. And so if you want to hear from people that have been investigating this one for years, I would recommend Death in Ice Valley, a podcast by the BBC about the case, which goes into painstaking detail about absolutely everything to do with this case. So do please check it out. There's much more to be learned about all of it. And all I've given you today is really just a very basic overview of the story. So if you want to find out more, that's the place to go. These episodes do take a lot of work to research and I do love making them, but if you want to help me get paid for spending so many hours writing and researching this show, then your support would be so magical and hugely enormously appreciated. You can support me in a variety of ways, including signing up to my Patreon, using the thanks button on YouTube, heading to my coffee page, or checking out my Amazon wishlist, or buying some merch. I also have my PayPal link if you just want to bug me a couple of quid to say thanks. If you head to the support me section in the show notes on the podcast or just click on the video info on YouTube, then everything you need is there. And it's not all about money, sharing the show around on social media, telling your friends, your vet or your therapist about the show all really helps me out. If you're currently listening to the podcast and you've ever been curious about what it looked like and you want extra info like photos of people involved in the case and maps of the places mentioned in the story and lots of extra info that I pop in those videos, then please head over to YouTube and you can finally put a face to the voice. I'd love to see you over there. Leaving a review on your podcast app of choice also helps. A comment, a thumbs up, follow, subscribe, all of that fun stuff, which is all 100% free, is more helpful than you know and helps the show to grow our lovable gang of ghouls and will allow me in the long run to bring you more of the haunted history we both love. Massive thanks goes out to my amazing top tier legendary executive Patreon producers, Amy, Christina, Christoph, Kate, Kevin, Mary, Rose, Sally, Sam, Sarah, Teresa, Terry, V and Veronica, and all of our other patrons too. If you'd also like your name read out by me at the end of every episode or your name in the show notes, then make sure you check out my Patreon, where you can also get exclusive episodes like the show I have with my long-suffering other half called Having a Problem. So far, we've solved issues with robots, exercise, school and video games. And our next one, which has just come out, is all about sharks. They're a little bit history-based, a little bit fact-based and a lot silly. So make sure you check that out. And there's also loads of other bonus content over there on Patreon too. Literally hours of it and it's all very reasonably priced. I hope to see you over there so I can personally welcome you to the Ghoul Gang. And lastly, thanks very much to Alternate Universe for sponsoring this episode. Please do go and take a look at their website. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. It's all so cute and fun, and it's absolutely perfect for the upcoming cosy winter months. And don't forget your discount code, macabre20, for your 20% off. Thanks for joining me for another macabre mini mystery from around the world. I've been Nikki Druce. Remember to stay spooky and I'll see you ghouls next time. I haven't got nails at the moment, so I can't make the noise. This is very sad. I promise I'll be back soon. infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials 
Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.